0: the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here today we are joined by alan chung welcome alan hi for our audience that are familiar with your background do you mind giving our audience a little idea of where (laughs) where you're coming from uh what you're up to now Sure. <clears throat>
1: so uh, where I came from, let's see. Um, I guess I'll start uh, from my college day. So um, I went to UC Berkeley. I got my Bachelor of Arts, actually, in computer science there. And then since then, I've actually mostly stayed in the Bay Area. My first job out of college was for a mid-sized uh, finance company. It's one of those, those things where uh, I think I... I talked to Microsoft, I talked to Amazon. I tried to interview them, didn't work out. So this is kind of where I ended up. I stayed there for a number of years, made some good friends, um, learned a lot of stuff. And and then, you know, as I was in the Bay Area, this was about the time when a lot of the second wave of startups started coming around. Um, So I joined a a number of them, kind of worked through that a little bit until I got a little bit tired of startups. um, And I decided to uh, work at Google for a year. So went in there in gang, a huge company, uh, learned a lot, um, met some really smart people. Decided it actually wasn't for me. So I only spent about a year there, and then I moved back to startups again. And I, in this particular case, I went to Square, which at that point was a 100 percent startup. Spent about four and a half years at that company, um, really saw it scale up, saw, saw it become... the the public company that it is today and after that aspect of it I spent uh, I went to healthcare, and I spent and went to a genetics testing startup for a year and a half that was also about that point in time when I transitioned from being a software engineer and my my particular software engineering up to that point was uh, full stack software engineering from in software engineering actually went into management and I've been doing that ever since Um, so after a year and a half at a health tech startup I moved companies again to where I am currently at a firm which is a a, a fintech startup in San Francisco, and so that's where I am right now. So I'm a senior director of engineering here at our firm.
0: Rad, rad. I mm-hmm. I would I would love to give some less modest cov, uh, color to your background. I think you've got a super awesome story to tell. One one item you left out is when you graduated college. It was shortly after the first dot com bubble bursting, mm-hmm. and like you told me previous. Classmates of yours weren't as enthusiastic as perhaps students today are to go into computer science. And I, I think it's also worth highlighting for folks who might not be familiar with their background that being at Square from 100 people through to IPO was probably an extremely exciting experience, probably a good move leaving from Google. <laughs> and, uh, uh, in, either, yes. <laughs>
1: yeah, in hindsight, yes. In
0: hindsight, hindsight's 2020 for sure. But for our audience that are curious about the things you've learned over the years, one of the topics that I'd love to ask you about is the topic of uh, decision making around building versus buying. And for our audience members who might not be in engineering, who might be interested in getting into engineering, what why is this why is this a topic of interest (laughs) just for
1: engineers? (laughs) Yeah, so you know, like it is one of the eternal conundrums uh, for software engineering organizations uh, because, you you know, as software engineers, you, well, you have the ability and usually a lot of the um, passion towards building stuff, right? You know, presumably a lot of us got into software engineering because we like building stuff, right? And then, of course, there's plenty of, you know, available software out there, you know, to buy. Um, whether on a one-off basis or on a continual, you can you know, subscribe to the software for the long term, and so the question becomes: Well, you know, you come across something that okay, I could totally build it, or I could buy it, which version, you know, which path do I go down and how do I make that decision? Um, that's really the, the crux of the build versus buy conundrum. Um, again, that, you know, either software organizations or sometimes individuals, you know, the decision you have to make, right? In in the coding world, it's, you know, like it actually sometimes manifests in the form of, well, do I build my own library or do I use some open source one? Right? Do I use something off the shelf or can I write this myself? Um, and so it actually, even in, in, in a, a pure kind of coding and programming sense, this also you know, it's a question worth asking.
0: So, you've worked at the gamut of kind of types of software engineer employers working in finance, working at Google, working at uh, Square from 100 People, working at Council. Uh, mm-hmm. each, each kind of business has a different framework for decision making about build versus buy. For our audience that are curious about maybe the variety of uh, factors that go into a build versus buy decision. Uh, do you mind sharing perhaps uh, what what leads a business to build versus buy?
1: <clears throat> sure, sure, and and I will say also that I, I've certainly run the gamut, and I've been fortunate enough to uh, also go from being a, a passive observer, as other people made this decision, to now, as, as, a, as a director at a firm, myself having to make the decision and thinking about the criteria in which we, we want to either buy something versus build it, right? Um, so at, at the very core of it, right, like, ultimately, these are all businesses, right? Startups, public companies are all businesses. So it comes down to really, like, cost. How much is this, how much is this gonna cost us, right? So on one side, well, the buy one is obvious. Well, you know, how, how much does it cost us to buy, buy this thing, right? Um, on the build one it's also pretty obvious although less um, apparent right it is you're going to have to calculate how much is it going to cost you to build it and that comes in the form of uh, well how many engineer hours is it going to take to build it and then potentially to maintain it afterwards right Uh, that part of it also can actually manifest itself even in the buy sense, right? So, for example, if you use an open source library to do something, right, and that is kind of the programming equivalent of buying something, well, what if you the library doesn't do what you want it to do, so I'm going to have to spend some time maintaining it, enhancing it, you know, like tweaking it to get get it to do what it is that I want it to do. Well, that there's cost in there as well, right? Particularly mm-hmm. cost to understanding somebody else's library, somebody else's code, and then, making, and then trying to make changes to it. So at the very bottom of it, it really, the the build versus buy question, it, it should be, you know, should be built down to, okay, like, what's this going to cost us, right? Um, that itself, again, manifests in a lot of different ways, right? So maybe the company, you know, cannot afford to buy it at this particular point in time, right? Rather, build it instead for the long haul. How quick do you actually want this thing to happen, right? If you buy it, it presumably it can happen pretty quickly. If you build it, it's going to probably take a little bit longer. Um, one aspect that is less obvious to folks um, is uh, well, do, do we actually want to own this area for the long haul? Basically, can it be considered one of our core competencies in the long run, right? Mm-hmm. And that should also inform okay, like should we buy, should we else or something and let somebody else basically do that? Or should we kind of own it ourselves, even if it takes more, if it costs more upfront? right for us to actually get this thing spun up if we actually don't have this capability for a number of months or years right because we we haven't built it yet right it's going to take us time to build and learn and how to do it right we will probably screw up at some point in time so we have to rebuild it again right there there's 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 a there's a curve to that um so all of that is to say that um yeah, there's a lot of factors that that kind of go into the decision, right? And and sometimes you actually won't know for a number of years, right? Like whether you actually made the right decision or not, right? Like, you know, when you buy something, hey, sometimes the vendor shuts down and you're scrambling to have to find some alternative, right? Or when you build something, hey, the architect who built it has left the company, right? And so you're stuck with this thing that nobody knows what to do with next. Um, and so in many of these cases, it, it actually, it, whether you made a good decision or not, right? And knowing all these factors going in, whether you made a good decision or not won't be apparent for probably a good number of years until you kind of reflect on it and figure it out, okay, this is how we got here, and this is our state of the world right now, and do we actually make a right call at this point in
0: Time. Totally true, totally true. And one of the factors, whether you build or buy, is your is your vendor lock-in or mm-hmm. your, your switching costs from away from the, the previous decision you made. Um, this is true of, of building too, like you just like you say, I found it to be more unique for uh, database type of products where mm-hmm. data is at rest and yeah. the switching costs. Are are huge because you end up building all of your business logic around the database. Yep, and it's a, I think the the financial markets bear it true in looking at you know, I guess you could argue that Square is a database product. Um, oh yeah, mm-hmm. or I mean, obviously Google as well. Their their massive database of indexed uh, URLs and whatnot. Um,
1: Yeah, there's actually a funny story I can tell there with regards to and databases, right? So, again, it goes back to the buy versus build, right? And if you're talking about databases, you know, like, you go out there and go, hey, like, what are some databases that currently exist? Well, there's MySQL and there's Postgres and there's Mongo and maybe a few others, right? It's like you, you probably wouldn't want to build your own database, right? You would, quote, unquote, buy. You basically use something off the shelf, right? Maybe you build something on top of it, so on and so forth. But chances are you would want to use one of those. And yeah, like that decision you would think is pretty easy. Uh, at one point in in Square's life, um, some some of the folks out in New York decided they actually wanted to build their own database. <laughs> they were like, well, why? Well, you know, like, because, you know, it would be really cool, it would be really cool to particularly around financial data and things like that would be actually be kind of cool to what if you built the database for, you know, like with these specific properties uh, around kind of guarantee of replication. Um, and Square ultimately decided, declined basically to move that project forward. And so these people actually decided to quit the company um, and actually go and build their database. Um, nowadays, they're actually known as uh, DB. uh They're based out of New York, and that's actually how they kind of got started was actually, hey, we actually wanted to build our own database. So even there, is, again, the build versus by decision, is, it's not. Uh, it, it takes many years. It actually took them many years to actually get that database off, off and running, um, but it actually took many years to really manifest and then to even make an evaluation as to whether that decision was correct or not.
0: That's a crazy story that I did not know. There's... Uh... <laughs> Super similar parallels to the background of MongoDB, as I understand it, where MongoDB sprung out of uh, an unrelated business called Guilt Group, also in New York. And Guilt Group decided they would make their own database, too, to deal with their daily deals uh, traffic, where people were all signing in at noon when the daily deal was announced. And, you know, shopping cart, ACID transactions were a big deal. And ultimately, I don't know if Guilt Group still exists, but Mongo got spun out as its own company, ipo not so long ago. Now it's a six billion market cap business. Mm-hmm. It's crazy how, and what you'd imagine is an internal project at one point in time mm-hmm. uh, could get spun out like that. Uh, are there, uh, just for our audience to get a sense of the types of engineering projects you've worked on over the years, uh, I know you've written on your blog, which I highly recommend our audience go check out, uh, about working on the uh, vendor facing dashboard for Square. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you mind sharing for our audience a little bit about a firm's product and the types of projects uh, your team might be working on?
1: Sure. Um, So, you know, at Square, I I spent most of my career there working on a lot of merchant facing tools and products. at a firm, I take, decided to take the opposite approach, and I, I'm spending a lot of my time uh, building consumer-facing tools and products. Um, so, for people who don't know about a firm as a startup, uh, what we do is we uh, <clears throat> we have uh, we issue out consumer-facing loans at the point of sale at the merchant point of sale. So we integrate with merchants on one side, and then we issue out loans to consumers on the other side. Um, I am the engineering lead for the consumer engineering organization so you know what a lot of what we build end up being either direct the things that the consumer directly uses so for example the affirm app um, uh, or the affirm uh, logged in website um, as well as some of the t- internal tooling that for example we give our customer service agents to use um, and so you know, my teams help build a lot of that as well, as well as as well as a lot of the underlying architecture and infrastructure. Uh, the consumer, you know, if I had to contrast kind of the merchant and the merchant tooling space versus the consumer and the consumer facing aspects of it. Um, on, on some levels, they're similar, right? Ultimately, you are interfacing with uh, a, a human on the other side. So you want to make sure that the design, the product, all of that is on point. The engineering you know, is robust and that you can try to iterate quickly. Um, but definitely on the consumer side, the feedback cycles tend to be a little bit longer. You have a much larger user base. And so you try to find, you have to do a lot more user research. You have to kind of find common features that you think will work well with your end consumers. And then you you know, spend time building on that. Knowing that you know it will be potentially many, many years before uh it can be itself a sustainable business, right? That is in some ways kind of the nature of consumer products. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm doing here at the firm and, and it's been uh it's been a ton of fun.
0: Totally. I know this is a bit of a red herring type of a question, and it is not exactly what your day-to-day uh what you spend a proportional amount of time thinking about in a senior director of engineering type of a role. But I think our audience would be curious to know uh, what types of programming languages, frameworks uh, are, are used by your team or, or that you've used in the past.
1: For sure. Um, so at a firm, um, we're actually pretty straightforward in terms of our tech stack. Um, our apps are built with Swift and Kotlin on iOS and Android, respectively. Um, and so they're they're pretty the the modern the, the more modern uh, languages and frameworks that uh Apple and google have uh have allowed to build the apps um, as opposed to Objective c and Java basically, which is the the older variants of that um, on the website uh we have i think a little bit of Angular from the old days but for the most part, we actually are using uh, React for a lot of our We're migrating a lot of our old apps into React, and then all the new apps are built with React as well. Um, And all of that is stood up on top of um, Python. and that has actually worked out really well for us, just in terms of a solid, you know, backend language and framework. And there's a number of web frameworks that I think that at this point I, I think we use Flask. But even then, it's like, well, we're big enough where we've customized enough of it that really we've built a, a lot of our custom stuff on top of it anyway. And all of that is stood up on top of uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services, which you know, if you know. Or start of any size, it makes at this point all the sense in the world to just utilize whatever cloud you know cloud infrastructure provider um, is convenient, and you know AWS is as good as any. Um, mm-hmm.
0: It's it's good to hear you sharing these specifics because uh, one one of the common questions we get, which is a bit of a red herring, is uh, in terms of what what technical skills to obtain or maybe working on a side project, what what tools or frameworks people should use. So one of the things that I recommend our audience members do is check out employers like a firm and look at their, you know, jobs, <laughs> look at their job descriptions to get a sense of, you know, what what are the frameworks and languages that are most popular with employers these days. So it, it's good to hear it's good to hear you list them out. Uh, one of the topics I know you're passionate about is um, with regards to mentoring uh, maybe younger, uh, software engineers or, or people earlier in their software engineering careers. What I know the topic of moving from being in an individual contributor role to being, an engineering manager is a, is a deep one and you've been through it. And, uh, for our audience that might not be, uh, at the point they're making the switch yet, uh, Do you mind speaking to what that switch looks like? What are what are the pressures that exist maybe uh, as as people become more senior in software engineering to to move into a managerial role?
1: For sure. And I I'll even take a step back, right, to your point. The you know, the the less experienced engineers, you know, going to a company like a firm or, you know, one of our Say peers in the in the startup space, right? How, you know, getting into the company. Um, I will say a lot of what companies like us look for is really the ability to learn and being unafraid to kind of tackle new technologies, right? That, that is one of the core attributes that I think actually allows you to really thrive as a software engineer, right? Re- in regards to where you want to go to management or not, right? That, that mm-hmm. allows you to thrive. Allows you to pick up new skills as uh, you pick up new languages and frameworks and be able to run with it. Ultimately, you know, all, this soft, all these software tools and frameworks are for us, you know, they are a means to an end, right? The end of, of which being kind of delivering great software products, delivering valuable software services, making, you know, Aspirationally, you know, our startups and the mission statement is making a difference in the world, right? That, and so, ultimately, people who are flexible, people who are willing to learn, are going to go really far, right? And that's true, you know, regardless of your level, right? But, but particularly true of getting inexperienced people because you have so much, like you have so much to learn, and mm-hmm. and and having that energy and having that that um, uh, the 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 willingness to try out new things um, is actually mm-hmm. a really important attribute. So, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say that one of, the, one of the kind of chicken and egg problems for first-time learners, perhaps, or people earlier in their careers is that, like you've described, uh, going to Google after your first job out of college and learning or observing that there are all these best practices, uh, it's hard sometimes for people to familiarize themselves with best practices above and beyond specific languages uh without maybe working first. So for audience that may be ignorant of some of the best practices that uh Google might have that a startup, you know, who might be on AWS might not have, uh, do you mind uh referring to a couple of them maybe? Oh for sure.
1: I, I, and at this point I will say is actually it's not hard to look them up. I think it actually is a little bit harder to maybe apply them in practice, right? As opposed to kind of reading them and go, okay, like that makes sense, right? Um, and the fact that best practices again, it's, it's not hard to look up if, if you're like, hey, what are some general software engineering best practices, right? It's like, um, make sure you decouple your code and modularize it as much as possible, right? Make sure you name your variables well and that you break out things into functions. Uh, make sure that your your things are can be well tested, right? And that they can be isolated that your uh, code commits are uh, you know small and modular that they do a discrete thing before you can you don't pile on a ton of stuff into one commit um it's going to be things like that right that that are kind of that make up the it's almost like the foundational aspects of well if you get get a lot of those right then you can actually can you can actually start building off of that well it's like hey if in big sense if the underlying principle is, hey, let's just make sure things are modular, make sure things are decoupled. Well, I can do that at the you know at the function level. I can do it at a library level. I can do it at a systems level and a service level, right? And all of that still mostly applies, right? And how that looks like at each of those levels might be, hey, like my function parameters are well-defined and that it makes sense for that, right? At, at a library level, it might mean, hey, like let's define our APIs properly. Let's make sure that's documented um, and so on and so forth. Um, so I feel like, yeah, those are going to be some of the best practices, regardless of whether you're at a Google or at a smaller startup. Now the big difference is that when you're at a Google, everything is at scale, right? And so, kind of everything, because you have to build everything at scale, you have really no choice but to do all of those best practices, right? You actually have senior Google engineers who will block you from committing code if you actually do not follow all of those best practices, because at scale, if something, if you, if something does go wrong, right, and if, if something um, is misaligned in any way, chances are you will, your effect will will can can ripple out pretty wide, right? As a small startup. You don't have as many users, right? The scale isn't as big, so if you skip on a bunch of things or you cut corners somewhere along the way, you're really optimizing for speed, right? So, hey, those best practices may not be as relevant, or that they may not matter because this code will be deleted a month from now, right? And so you end up actually, even if you knew those what those practices are, you actually end up making those trade-offs, right? because you're like, hey, I actually, I actually need to move really quickly here. I'm not going to write as many tests for this module because I just need to get this out and we want to test it and we want to see how it works out. So, yeah, I, I think um, those are, if, if you were looking for some best practices, that's what they would be in a big company and this is actually one of the reasons why you, they actually may not be at a startup and that's actually perfectly okay. Um, so, this commonly happens once people have been an engineer for a number of years and, and they're like, hey, well, what is next, right? And one way to think about it is that, you know, you've been an engineer for a while, you've uh, gone deep in your area of interest, right? And whether that is like, say, front end web development, maybe that's machine learning, maybe that is app development, maybe that is platform, um, and kind of building infrastructure, right? You know, you work on it for a number of years, and you get pretty deep. Um, And at some point, you ask, well, you know, what's next, right? Um, and that's when commonly people think about hey like maybe going sideways a little bit and taking on the management management track could be attractive um, and, and you know when people kind of start thinking about that um, it's kind of worth discussing well why, why do you want to do that um, you know like where 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 do you um, see yourself going in a couple of years and would this actually be enjoyable for you um, a, a lot of what people should consider as they're thinking about management is, understanding that it is it is an adjacent role, which means that you know the reason why you're thinking about it should be that well I get to do I get to kind of expand my scope and my domain and my sphere of influence by taking on a more managerial position and being able to have a team of folks who are um, you know who are in this domain, kind of be able to work on bigger things, and I have you know some measure of control over how to, you know where to direct this team, how to have these enable these people to grow, right? But of course, since it's an adjacent role, a lot of actually what makes you a good engineer may or may not actually apply uh, as you um, as you become a manager, um, and so it actually requires people to pick up a, a new set of skills um, around people management. Mm-hmm. Um, that may not be apparent when you're when you're an engineer and you're, and you're you know building out features, you're going deep in a specific discipline. Um, I will say that at the more, particularly even at the more senior engineering levels, and you know by senior I mean you get to the staff levels, the principal levels, um, you know you know people who have a decade, two two decades of experience as a software engineer. Some of that, some of what kind of lets you get to those levels is actually not all too different from what makes for a good manager right Uh, traits around leadership traits around communication Uh, Aspects of being able to collaborate with other engineers and being able to, you know, architect a system and be able to explain it effectively, being able to debate about it, come to a consensus and then kind of drive progress by working with other engineers, guess what, a lot of that actually ends up being really applicable when you are a principal engineer, say, right, and you're trying to basically solve business problems with technical solutions. but uh, so all of that is to say that, you know, even if you're thinking, hey, management is not going to be for me, it is a very different role um, on some days because the how, how you're evaluated, kind of what makes for an effective manager um, and kind of what your how much hands on or hands off. Uh, you get to be as a manager is very different than that from uh, in, an individual contributor engineer. Um, but there are also some similarities as well. And, and particularly once you kind of get to you know, systems that are really big, you get to scope and domain that's much bigger than you know, something that one engineer can think about and, and that can work on, it turns out some of those leadership skills actually really do come into play and are really important for, for you to be able to accomplish these really big projects.
0: One of the questions, or maybe misgivings, our audience might have about maybe spending so long in the trenches of being an individual contributor is maybe in your role now, or or through your transition from being an individual contributor to manager. Um, how how did you? Were there any points in time where you really had to reset and reassess how hands on you're being? For example, maybe in reviewing you know code changes, pull requests. How were there were there distinct points in your in your transition where you can point to or recognize that you really had to dial back how involved you were in, in the, the hyper detailed?
1: Oh yeah. Um, I remember, I actually distinctly remember kind of exactly how it happened. Um, I was on paternity leave with my first child, came back to the office, moved over into management, transition and management. After I had my baby Um, and then I think we had a deadline. So this was about July or August um, and we had a deadline by about December to basically launch a rewrite of the system. Um, And so what I ended up doing was trying to be a manager, um, kind of picking up the skills necessary to be a decent manager at the same time. Uh, having you know being under pressure to launch the system by the end of the year which meant that I felt like well here's all the code that I'm gonna have to pick up because the team is down one engineer right like that engineer went into management Um, and so I was basically serving double duty for a good four months while I had a I had a two-month-old baby yeah. <laughs> um, that uh, that was keeping me and my wife awake um, at night. So it was, you know, a lot of nights, a lot of weekends of, kind of coding. While during the daytime, I was trying to be a manager, trying to coordinate, trying to pick up these skills. Um, and so after all of that was over, you know, you know, we launched it. We did launch it by I think it was literally the night. Um, before the company went on break for Christmas and New Year's. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that was a mistake because customer service told me after New years, they're like, never do that again. (laughs) Because do not launch a new system before break and all of you go on vacation, right? Because we heard a lot of complaints. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a lesson learned. But, But that aside, after all of that was over, You know, coming back to New Year's and that was when I decided, you know what, this is not scalable, right? It it is not something that I can keep on doing, right? And it didn't make sense for me to do that. What I should do, again, it's like this is a skill you pick up as a manager as well. I should not in the long term cover as an engineer, right? So the, the thing that I should be doing is finding or coaching or mentoring somebody who actually can fill that role and that's actually my job as a manager and that's actually what allows the team to scale what allows you know the team not to feel like that is stuck on um you know a a manager who's responsible for a bunch of code but they can never actually get around to implementing that code um and so this was you know like one of of the things i learned were actually um being hands-off here actually makes more sense it actually forces you to both kind of pick up the skills as a manager, as well as be able to make tough prioritization decisions, right, mm-hmm. is, hey, you actually can't fall back onto uh, coding your way out of this, so let's figure out what else we can do instead, and kind of let's figure out what we have to cut or what we, what we have to pull back, or the timelines that we're gonna have to change as a result of that. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, for me, that was a, a distinct moment in time where I realized, okay, like, this this is definitely not um, something that, again, like, I being, you know, reluctantly being hands off, but ultimately, I think it was totally the right call.
0: Totally. I I think the last question I'll end with is, when you've made this transition from being IC to being a manager, you obviously, I think people know, have a greater responsibility of being involved in recruiting and hiring. Mm -hmm. And I've observed at least that the thinking and the decision-making and the prioritizing around the recruiting process changes as you take on a bigger role in that process, understandably Um, for audience that are kind of curious about how maybe a senior director thinks about recruiting versus maybe an IC uh, of similar years of experience. What, what, how has your experience or viewpoint on uh, recruiting maybe changed as you've, you know, stepped into management
1: um or has it <laughs> i mean for the most part i i what hasn't changed is that i w- i still would like work i like working with smart people i like i like working you know with people who I can bounce ideas off of and whether that you know i'm an i c engineer who's interviewing somebody or or a manager who's interviewing somebody i think i I would still look for that right so I don't think that that has critically changed um I will say what has changed um, and this may be, you know, like this actually upon reflection might be a little bit cold-hearted, but as a manager, as a director, um, I have to look at what the overall picture is. I have to look at the overall kind of landscape and in some senses it can end up dehumanizing the individuals, right, that are kind of going through the pipeline, the candidates, right? Because I have to look at, well... How many, you know, what is the size of the team going to be, right? And, you know, how many people do we have to hire on any given month to kind of hit those targets, right? As a manager, you have to kind of plan for, you know, what it's going to look like, you know, the projects that these people are going to work on, what, you know, the kind of business impact, right, of these projects. And so, therefore, the folks that you're going to have to bring in the door. So, for me, it's time, you know, as a manager, you kind of tie a lot together and you're like, well, therefore, this is kind of the team size that we have to get to, here's the recruiting goals, here's here's what we're going to do, right? Which is maybe less apparent as an engineer, right? And I think that is probably the right division, right? The engineer, particularly if you're in an interview, you're talking to a candidate, what you should care most about is, hey, do I want to work with this person? right? At the end of the day, if we if we bring this person on board and they're gracious, gracious enough to accept our offer, hey, would this be a good partnership? Would this be a good person on the team? And as an engineer, that's what you should be thinking about, and that's totally the right framing. Mm-hmm. right? As a manager, again, it's almost like you have to look at things at a larger scale, so you have to play the numbers a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it becomes less about, this particular individual sometimes, and more as well, okay, collectively, um, how many people, and what is the size of the team, and what's the allocation it gonna look like, and it, for example, if we don't hit our hiring targets, well, this is what we're going to miss as a result of that. And so again, on some levels, it is unfortunate because it can feel de- more dehumanizing, right? It's like, you know, it, it, re- it reduces, it, you know, you, you run the danger of reducing it into here's like the raw number count how many people were bringing in the door mm-hmm. right so what i do try to do sometimes is to kind of force myself to um you know really work with individuals as opposed to, so because i know like on some level of it as a manager again you are partially evaluated on the ability to think about the tying all together from a business standpoint so but i do enjoy actually talking to with with individuals and kind of working out what it is that they want to do in a way just so that I actually allow to allow me to think you know, kind of put myself in the mindset of, okay, working with individual candidates and kind of recruiting from that standpoint, understanding what it's that people are looking for and making sure that, you know, the the jobs and the roles and the positions that we have kind of can align very well with that.
0: Well, I think your description of even just how an employer might have hiring goals is a different perspective than rank-and-file engineers might get. Like, uh, like you described, maybe... Uh, uh, director of engineering would know best what the adverse outcomes might be of failing to hit a hiring goal. A little bit better than a rank and file individual contributor engineer, uh, but no, I I think I think for our audience that might be wondering what drives an employer to make an offer. Uh, that's the that's the kind of thing that I'd imagine people would very, be very curious about from the perspective of you know higher management in engineering is how 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 are hiring goals set and and what is the adverse outcome if an employer fails to hit them?
1: Right. And and yeah, ultimately, right, it's like uh, ultimately at the end of the day, right, all, all business, again, all, you know, companies are businesses, you have budgets, you're trying to hit these goals because there are certain business objectives, you know, within engineering, definitely there, you know, like you're, you're, you're more aligned with the, the types of engineering projects that you can deliver, right, and kind of the business outcome of those engineering projects. So that's kind of where you start from uh, thinking about, well, this is the team I need to build. Right, and here's the specific roles on the team that I need to build. Right, like you you go through that exercise of trying to figure out, um, you know, if I have a team now, what are the complementary pieces we need to actually kind of have a a team that that we think can execute on this business project. And then from there, again, you talk to candidates, you you kind of go through the exercise of trying to hire and recruit. But that process itself is, you know, it requires a lot of um, partnership between a recruiting team and. a manager and the management team, and even the individual members of the team that are doing these interviews, right? It requires all of us to work uh, in good partnership together to actually come up with that. Um, and again, from from a company standpoint, you know, like that's how you kind of see, you know, a, a you know a bunch of job listings on a job on, on a company's website, for instance, right? Well, that's how we actually got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes you can actually even tell. Sometimes it's like, well, the way this company is actually set up, uh, they decided to, for example, have a software engineering position for every team Mm -hmm. that's available. You can actually kind of tell from that that, well, the way the recruiting is set up, each team is kind of off off on its own, right? Some other companies are like, we only have one software engineering open right so you can kind of tell okay they've actually decided to centralize the way they're doing they're hiring software engineers and so you actually might you you as a part of that the process of recruiting and even onboarding you actually figure out which team they're going to join um so even from that you can actually kind of derive uh even from the outside what some of those processes could look like and how that company thinks about these roles
0: Mm -hmm. well speaking of jobs listings uh we should take a moment to plug that a firm is hiring uh alan is hiring Uh, You guys (laughs) can check out a firm's jobs website or jobs career page. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll include a a link in the show notes. Uh, Otherwise, if you would like to get a hold of Alan, ask him any more questions. Uh, He's reachable on LinkedIn. He has a personal blog that I highly recommend checking out and giving a read. Uh, Also, we'll include in the show notes. Um, Mm -hmm. Alan, thank you for coming on.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation.
0: I hope to do it again soon. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.